are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. Good morning. Righteousness through faith. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where, then, is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works. No, the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is it God, the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by his faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Amen. All right. Thank you, Heather. I was thinking back to two summers ago, 2019, Heather and I were adult leaders with a crew of adults who took students to England. And what we did was a leadership development trip with high school and college-age students. We were following in the footsteps of George Williams, who was the founder of the YMCA. And so we were in rural England, and we spent time in London, actually with a whole YMCA conference celebrating its 175th birthday. And part of our itinerary took us north to Liverpool. It was actually our first few days We went up to Liverpool where we visited with YMCAs and we did some service projects. And one of the things they did is they took us out to an evening rugby match in the professional rugby league of England. And so there we were in this stadium cheering on the hometown team. It was the St. Helens Saints. I still have no idea how the game of rugby works. You have to gain this whole new vocabulary, things like scrum and ruck and maul, grubber kick and ankle tap and line out. There's this whole new vocab that we had to learn. George Bernard Shaw said, Britain and the U.S. are two nations separated by a common language. (laughs) I think he was right. But then I thought, you know, there's games we play here that we get, that we naturally understand just by virtue of growing up here. So you might know then how football works, or baseball, and some of the complexities there. And I want to suggest to you this morning that there's something like the basic rules of biblical Christianity that is exactly what we have in this passage. If you want to understand what is at the heart of following Jesus, then this is it, right here in Romans 3. Specifically, verses 21 to 26. Martin Luther called those verses the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. 
verses 21 to 26. And scholars ever since Luther have agreed with him. Cranfield calls it the heart of the whole of Romans. So here we are. We're four weeks into Romans. We've got four more to go. And then after Easter, we're going to take a big break for the summer months. And then we'll come back in the fall for the second half of the book. But each week that we'll be here in Romans, there will be new treasures to discover, new things to unfold together. But what we look at today is really the heart of it. So that if we don't get this, then we don't get anything else. It is that essential. In years past, I've met with our confirmation students for some one-on-one conversation in in preparation of uh, worship together and in that service. And I've asked them these questions I want to share with you this morning. Now, we talk about a lot of things and a lot of questions, but these three are the core of what we talk about. And we might be at Cherry Berry or Caribou, and I would ask them, number one, why do you want to be confirmed? Number two, what is the gospel? And number three, what does the gospel mean for your life now and when you die? And I wonder if we were at Cherry Berry or Caribou and you had a latte in your hand and we were having this conversation, what would you say? How would you answer those questions? These questions are critical. And so are the verses today here that we look at in Romans. These are the basics. They're foundational. And it might be a little intimidating when we pick up this passage. I mean, it's big words and long sentences. But God's word is not meant to remain a mystery to us. Do you know that? He desires for us to understand it and gives us the Holy Spirit to illuminate his word, to make it clear as we ask for his help. I'd just like to pause and pray for a minute. Prayed a couple times already this morning, but let's do it again and just ask for the Lord's help as we take up this word. Lord, we desire to know you. We desire to know truth And to live according to it. And beyond that, Lord, I I think for each of us, there is this yearning within us to know the assurance of our salvation. That we would know that we're not lost, we're not drifting, our life has purpose and direction and meaning. And that we belong to you. Today and forever. And so, Lord, in your mercy, would you make these things clear to us? Would you speak to us this morning in your word? We ask that you would be our teacher. For Jesus' sake, amen. Verses 21 to 26, believe it or not, is one long sentence in the original. There's no period in there. You get in big trouble in English composition if you did that. It would be a major run-on sentence. But in Greek, it was the opposite. They said, the longer the sentence, the better the writing. So they encouraged it in school. And here's what Paul is writing about here. He's writing about justification by faith. And it was this discovery that set Martin Luther back in the 1500s that set him free from the torment of sin and judgment and condemnation that he felt. It was this discovery that unleashed the corrective force of the Reformation in the church. Justification by faith. And if you're not quite sure what that phrase means, that itself is kind of a mouthful. We're going to give it definition in just a minute and as we go along throughout our morning. 
But what set Luther free was essentially this, was just spending time in this book and specifically reading the book of Romans. So in chapter 1, he read Romans 1.17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by trying hard and living a perfect life? No, that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That's the summary statement from Paul in chapter 1 that now here is elaborated in chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. One whole sentence. But in between there, we had this big gap from 117 to 321 where we just scratched the surface last week together. Last week we talked about our need to be justified. Our need to be declared righteous. And so last week we talked about the wrath of God and gave it proper definition. Because when we think wrath, we said last week, we have this very human caricature of what that looks like. Wrath is hot-headed and vindictive and violent and out of control. And we said last week, that's not the wrath of God that the Bible talks about. No, God's wrath is the necessary reaction of his perfect holiness to the ugly reality of our sin. That God, who by definition is perfectly good and just and righteous, cannot ignore sin and wrong and moral evil. And we gave an example last week about the recent incident in Buffalo, Minnesota that happened at the clinic. We have this internal sense of right and wrong, and when that is violated, we feel that in our bones. We understand what it means to pay for a mistake. We understand what it means when a crime occurs, there's a due penalty for that crime. And we think, too, about all the fun little practical ways this shows up in our life. In basketball, you know, you can't body check your opponent into the bleachers and then take the ball and dribble down and make a basket. No, that's a foul. There's an offense that's happened. In the same way at the gas station... You can't pull into Ralphie's, fill up your car, and then just decide to make a break for it without paying. You know, they don't like that. They're probably going to come and find you. And at parents, you know what it's like to have to discipline your children. A home without discipline would be a nightmare. We know what it means to raise up our children and, when necessary, to give a consequence. All of this is because God has made us in His image. And so we are these little imperfect reflections of his perfect character. And so these are some of the things, just in summary, that we talked about last week. That when we reject the truth of God, we rightly incur his wrath. And that is what Paul has detailed for quite a few verses up to this point. That there's a penalty for sin, a consequence. And what Luther agonized over before reading Romans is how he could ever be sure that he had paid enough, that he put in enough time in the consequence to cover his sin. You know, he's sitting in time out thinking, when is my time out over? Am I being good enough now? How could he know that the wrath of God was not still upon him? And then he read Romans 3.21. Starts with two words. But... Now. 
And Martin Lloyd-Jones said, There are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than just these two words, but now. They are the continental divide between the time of sin's dominion and now the time of salvation. At 321, right where we start today, we step out of God's wrath and into his righteousness. That's what's happening in the text. Paul says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. There's a helpful little summary I find from John Stott, a wonderful British theologian. He's passed on now. Here's how he put this. He asked the question, what does the righteousness of God mean? Also kind of a big word. What does the righteousness of God mean? And pay special attention to the verbs that he used. Okay, he gave four sentences. The righteousness of God is the status which God requires if we're ever able to stand before him. Two, it is that which God achieves through the atoning sacrifice of his son. Three, it is that which is revealed in the gospel. And four, it is that which God bestows freely upon all who trust in Jesus. So there's the four verbs. Requires, achieves, revealed, and bestows. That is the righteousness of God. And Paul says in verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And that's where we say, that's the gospel. Right there in that verse, we just read it. The righteousness of God is these four things. It is given, not earned. It is through faith, not through good deeds or works. It is through faith in Jesus Christ and no one else. And it is given to all who believe. It is not a selective club. And do you remember what Luther said when this hit him? We reviewed this a couple weeks ago. When he finally understood the gospel, when he read this, he said, Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy, remember it's given, he justifies us by faith. And he said, thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. That's what the gospel does. It sets us free from sin, and then it is open doors and paradise. And it was this good news that was being proclaimed in Rome, the capital city of the whole empire. And all kinds of people are hearing this from all walks of life. And they're coming to faith in Christ. The biggest distinction among them was probably this one in the early church that we read about here, that some were Jewish and some were not. And the Jewish word for those who were not is the word Gentile. And this dynamic of Gentile Jewish believers is what led to a fair amount of tension. We'll see Paul address it again and again in his letter. Because if left unchecked, it could lead to discord and a splitting of the church. And that's why Paul says after, to all who believe... There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. That which separates you into two camps, he says, no, before the Lord there's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that, Romans 3.23, is a great Bible memory verse. It's a summary of everything that we read in that big section. Remember 118 to 320? That's it in a nutshell. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And fall short 
is a present tense verb, meaning it has the sense of regularly falling short. I continually mess up. I can't get out of this. I try and I try my best like Luther did, but I keep coming up short and it's never going to be enough. How will I know if it's ever enough? They say there are two distinct halves to the presidency of Lyndon B. Johnson. He became president, of course, when JFK was assassinated. He was the VP, and all of a sudden, through a very tragic event, he was the president. But Lyndon Johnson really rose to the moment in the aftermath of JFK's assassination. He brought reassurance to the nation, and then he began what is one of the most transformative legislative seasons in the history of this country. It started with a significant tax reduction package. Then came the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Then the Clean Air Act, sweeping legislation. By then, it was about a year later, he then won the regularly scheduled election. And he won it by a landslide. And then he worked together with the 89th Congress which was arguably the most productive in American history. The creation of Medicare, Social Security Reform, the Voting Rights Act, Higher Education Act, the Freedom of Information Act, and the list goes on. Public works, economic development, a national foundation for the arts, public broadcasting, housing and urban development, immigration. And this was all part of what he called the Great Society. And Lyndon Johnson was at the top of his game, at the top of the world, popularity across the country, way up there until what? Until Vietnam, which had been kind of simmering on the back burner, and now it just boiled over. His great strength was domestic affairs, but Lyndon B. Johnson did not know how to handle the war. LBJ did not run for re-election in 1968. He didn't even seek his party's nomination because he knew he would never win. Instead, he retreated to his childhood home on a ranch in rural Texas where they had turned his home, his childhood home, into a museum. And listen to this. There in the waning years of his life, Lyndon Johnson could be found checking out the variety of license plates in the parking lot and checking the weekly attendance records to try to get some measure of how much people still liked him. You can measure, 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 but you will always fall short. What we need is a new rubric, a new reality. And that's what we get in verse 24. Paul says, And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Now in that line, there's two word pictures that Paul uses that we would miss as non-Greek speakers. But writing into their culture, the readers would have instantly picked this up as he writes about it. The two words are justified and redemption. The first is a word from the courtroom. The second is a word from the slave market two fixtures in Greco-Roman culture. So you have to imagine a judge hearing a case and then delivering the verdict and saying this word, saying justified. And I don't know if they pounded the gavel back then, but they would declare justified. The judge is saying 
this person here is right. I have heard the case and I am declaring this one to be righteous. And then the other word Paul uses is redemption, which we remember very recently from our study in Ruth, don't we? The kinsman redeemer, Boaz, who bought back redeemed Ruth. And in Paul's context, this would have been the slave market in Rome. Estimates for Rome, imagine this. Estimates say that one-third of the population of Rome at this time were slaves. A third. And if you counted all of the people who had been slaves at some point in their life, it was two-thirds. So they're very familiar with the slave market and the purchasing of people. And so Paul says, we have been purchased out of slavery to sin, and our redemption comes through Christ Jesus. I want you to listen to how John Bunyan, listen to how he described what happened in his life when he read this verse. This is from his autobiography called Grace Abounding. He says, as I was walking up and down in the house as a man in a most woeful state. Let me just interject. Do you know this feeling? I bet you do. Have you walked up and down in your house? as a man or woman in woeful state. So John Bunyan is describing. He says, that word of God took hold of my heart. And what word of God was it? He quotes Romans 3.24. You are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And he said, but oh, what a turn it made upon me. All right, he lived a long time ago, so forgive the old English. He says, now was I as one awakened out of some troublesome sleep and dream. And listening to this heavenly sentence, it was as if I had heard it thus. Here's what he's hearing. Sinner, you think that because of your sins and infirmities, I cannot save your soul. But behold, my son is by me. And upon him I look and not on you and will deal with you as I am pleased with him. We hit a new milestone this year in our family. My girls came home from school one day with a glint in their eye and they said, Dad, Mom, we switched places. I said, what? What do you switch places? They said, you know, we, we switched places in class. Now, I only have one here today. Many of you know we have identical twin daughters and so think parent trap or something like that. So they're sixth graders, and they're at this little parochial school up near where we live. And so then they're sharing the details with me. And they did this in religion class with the pastor as the teacher. And I did my best to just look at them very sternly. But inside, I was kind of like, yes! <laughs> well done. There's a switch that happens at the cross. A double imputation, it's called. And, and here's what that means. My sin switches places, and it goes from me to the cross, from me to Christ. And in exchange, his righteousness goes from him upon me. I want you to imagine you're in a really expensive clothing store, and you're putting on a coat that you have no business buying. This store is out of your league 
and yet you're putting on this expensive coat and you get to wear it and you get to have it. That is the picture here of putting on the righteousness of Christ. We sing about this in an old hymn that has recently been redone and we sing it here from time to time. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found. And then you remember how the words go? Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. It is an imputation of righteousness. I don't earn it. I can't buy it. I just get to have it. And Paul continues and says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And here he uses a third word picture for his readers, one that we would miss not being from their culture and their world. So we had the courtroom, the slave market, and what is it here? It's the temple. What our Bible translates as a sacrifice of atonement is the Greek word hilasterion. And the only other place that hilasterion appears in the New Testament is Hebrews 9.5. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. And so there it is at the end. It's translated there as the atonement cover, hilasterion. And so it makes sense that where we actually run into this word a lot is in the Old Testament. Where it appears in Hebrew, but whenever that gets translated into Greek, they use this word. The atonement cover was part of the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark, isn't this in an Indiana Jones movie, if I remember? Yeah, all right. Not sure how accurate that was, but the Ark was this gold-covered wooden chest where God manifested his presence with his people. It was the visible sign, right? It's not like God is confined to a box. But this is something people can see and carry around the wilderness with them and have in the tabernacle and later the temple. And it's the visible sign that God is with us. He is saying, I am your people. I will dwell with you. And the lid of that wooden chest of the Ark of the Covenant was the atonement cover, the hilasterion, or the mercy seat is what it's called. And above the lid stretched these wings of the two cherubim. And this is where the blood of a bull and a goat on the Day of Atonement was sprinkled by the high priest. Atonement, another big word. We know it from maybe uh, old Western movies. Atonement means the reparation of a wrong or injury or, in this case, of sin. So on the Day of Atonement, it is all about forgiveness. That is what we're coming to God for, is forgiveness. And so they would do this once a year with the high priest and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, and it would happen again and again every year, and it was never a permanent fix. So I want you to take all of this together, atonement, mercy seat, imputation, and let's read that verse one more time. I think it'll come alive in a different way. God presented Christ, not me, presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. And so the writer of Hebrews says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We are stuck in this mess, this cycle of sin and death. And so God sent his son to atone for our sin once and for all by giving his life in my place 
on the cross. It has been called the great exchange. Our sins are laid upon Christ and his righteousness is laid upon us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Time is running short, and so we'll draw this to a close. There's so much here, verses we won't even get to today. But Paul has written this whole section to say, faith is the only basis by which we are declared righteous before God. We are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. It is the cross or it's nothing. A couple weeks ago, Esther and I finally did something we've been thinking about over the last year. And that is we put a cross up on the wall above our bed. And for 16 years, we've had, wherever we've lived, we've had three photos in that spot. And they've been wedding pictures. Three black and white photos. And for whatever reason, we just felt led over this last year to swap them out and to put a cross above our bed. And so now, it's just when you new furniture or picture or something, and you see it. And so I lay down at night, and sometimes with the moonlight flooding in through the windows, I lay down, and there I just instantly see the cross above my head on the wall. And there's this old song that runs through my head every time I see it. And I want to share that song with you, but I first want to tell you about who wrote it. We'll close with this. Her name was Elizabeth Clefane. She lived in Scotland in the 1800s where she grew up in Melrose, which is south of Edinburgh. And Elizabeth was described as a pretty quiet kid. She was shy. She liked books. And she suffered from very poor health. On top of that, when she was young, it's the mid-1800s, her parents both died. And so she and her sisters were very familiar with sorrow. And yet Elizabeth, as she grew in years, she became known, this was her nickname, she became known as the Sunbeam of Melrose. That though she was shy and had experienced such hardship, people saw in her this cheery disposition and this utterly selfless spirit. You would often find her around town serving the poor or coming alongside and helping out somebody with a disability. And on one occasion, she and her sisters, they even decided to sell their horse and carriage, which would be like you or me selling our car, and giving the money to a poor family in town who needed help. Elizabeth was considered an excellent, sympathetic listener. She was known as a diligent student of the Bible and a worker among the poor, even though she was quite frail herself. And yet, what did this woman accomplish in her life? What did she ever amount to? What license plates and attendance records did she have to show for? Not much. She died at age 38, and she had written two hymns. Only two hymns. One of them is this. And I want you to just listen to the words. 
Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. The shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land, a home within the wilderness, and rest upon the way from the burning of the noontide heat and the burden of the day. I take, O cross, thy shadow for my abiding place. I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face. Content to let the world go by, to know no gain or loss. My sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. Let's pray. Lord, you have been so good and kind to us. And I pray for each of us who are listening that your cross would be our resting place. That it would be the place where we would know our sin is lifted, our hearts are cleansed and comforted. And Lord, that your righteousness would settle on us like the mantle of your love. We thank you, Lord, for this gift. We receive it. We place all our trust in you in what you have accomplished for us on the cross. And I pray for any of us who are listening who have any doubt about our standing before you that today and from now on they would know the full assurance of their salvation and the riches of your love for them in Christ. Lord, we praise and worship you. Pray in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at theychurch.org.